0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we are talking to Dr. Elliot Short about his book titled Building a Multi-Ethnic Military in Post-Yugoslav, Bosnia and Herzegovina, published by Bloomsbury. Um, This book is really helpful because What happened to the military in Bosnia and Herzegovina after uh, the early 1990s is a complicated story with a lot of implications for other parts of the country, other aspects of understanding what happens during and after wars. Um, So this is a really useful book to properly investigate this aspect. So Elliot, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: And thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I'm very glad. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I was, uh, my name's Elliot Shaw, as you've said, uh, and I I finished my PhD at the University of East Anglia back in 2019, and that was my kind of home for a lot of this research. Um, And between living out in the Balkans for a few years um, and teaching modern European history at the university, I really kind of grounded a lot of my understanding of the region, um, for this book. And the reason I, you know, there's a few reasons why I decided to focus in on this subject and this geography, um, you know, for the Balkans, this region's so rich in history, there's a lot to explore, especially in the 20th century, when we can think about, you know, the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires at the, the beginning of the century through to the first world war, the kingdom of Yugoslavia, the second world war with, you know, Nazis and fascists, um, followed by the socialist period, more conflict, and then, you know, these kind of emergence into democracy and, and European Union to, to varying levels for, for the region. So, and that's just, you know, the century I'm looking at really. Um, and in this period, we witnessed multiple efforts to forge multi-ethnic states and with those multi-ethnic institutions. Um, and, you know, so it really is a, an interesting um, petri dish to kind of examine a lot of these questions that i try and address in the book in terms of the military side of things you know for me the military is a really rich vein to explore state building um, post conflict stabilization all of this kind of things you know you have this institution which states create it's sort of a symbol a manifestation of that state there's there's a lot to dig into beyond you know the battlefield stuff you know it's a lot about what how they how a state wants the military to represent them who they want to recruit, what jobs they give it, etc. Now, all of these factors kind of come together in Bosnia um, to create a very unique case, and for me, this is a particularly interesting one because of the scale of international engagement. If we look at, you know, support to post-conflict societies, the quantity, the sheer quantity in terms of dollars, um, plus the the length of the duration um, of that commitment, was quite unique in Bosnia. So. If we're exploring these questions of building institutions and kind of trying to bring stability to post-conflict states, Bosnia really is the case where we, we see what happens when um, a lot is invested in that effort. Um,
1: uh-huh.
0: And so for me, yeah, Bosnia, it's a complicated story. It's important to understand it. But for me, that there are lessons to be learned and carried across to, to other contexts. And I would add that this doesn't necessarily just apply to post-conflict um, societies you know, since we've seen the the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia nearly two years ago now, um, thinking about militaries in terms of their resilience to, like, foreign information, manipulation and interference, influence operations, all of these kind of attacks which try to exploit divisions such as, you know, a multi-ethnic institution, um, and also looking beyond the military to other institutions um as well whether it's police whether it's you know the tax bureau whatever it might be so you know while this you know and we'll talk about it more today i think the military component is really important there's a lot more to learn from this bosnian case um and that's why i wrote the book
1: Brilliant. Thank you for that introduction. Um, useful context and a bunch of threads to pick up, including uh, that emphasis on the military. Can you tell us a bit more about why you think getting military integration right is perhaps the most important piece in ending, not just maybe this conflict, but if we think of it as um, tying to other conflicts that you just mentioned, ending conflicts like this?
0: Yeah, of course. And um Yeah, there's a few layers to this. And I think, you know, the most obvious one, perhaps is uh, on the kind of military side of things, Uh, having a few armies in in one state, you know, like in Bosnia, that had been fighting each other is really not sustainable. Um, There are going to be skirmishes, you know, clashes, which could easily escalate. So, you, you know, purely from a sort of operational point of view, bringing those armies together into one institution, having them, uh, giving them oversight with a single Ministry of Defence, all of these things is a very practical measure to to preventing additional conflict, right? Um, and this is not just necessarily about that military fracturing back into its kind of composite elements, but, you know, we, we can think about risks of coups d'etat, uh, violence against civilians, you know, corruption, state capture, all of these things. So uh, that's just the military side of things. And I think it's important to note here that When we look at civil wars in many parts of the world, uh, the recidivism rate, you know, the the likelihood of that conflict starting again is very high. So addressing these kind of very upfront battlefield kind of challenges is absolutely key. And, um, you know, it's almost pointing out the obvious here, but I think it's good to dwell on that for a moment Uh before we move on to the kind of, uh, you know, the political domain where we look at that kind of consensus that's required to build a integrated military, that represents a a political compromise, um, a shared investment by formerly warring parties. Um, And this is important, not just for the kind of nuts and bolts of bringing that together, bringing those people together into a room and coming to this agreement. But it's it's a symbolic step for, for the rest of society to look and see, you know, these differing factions have now agreed to create a shared institution. That gives us a sense that we can you know make investments plant for next year, whatever it might be um and if we look a little bit deeper again um in a contested state such as Bosnia, but there were so many like this um having a unified military is an important symbol as well because it's it's tangible it's there it's very present it's not necessarily as abstract as uh you know, flags and anthems and stuff. Um, So having that, you know, this is almost going back to Weber and the very basics of, you know, statecraft where the monopoly on violence kind of provides the state with a level of legitimacy, which it otherwise wouldn't have. Hmm. Um, So these are a few different kind of ways of looking at that military integration piece. And I would just add that you know, Bosnia is a good example of this, where progress made in the military uh, really served as a kind of vanguard integration across other sectors um, to varying degrees of success and I wouldn't necessarily say that every single institution should be integrated or anything like that but where there's kind of scope for that to be either cost efficient, politically useful, effective in another way, um, then having the military kind of set the tone um, and get things moving I think is very important.
1: And for that reason among others that you've mentioned um, I think it is worth as you said, spending a moment on this idea that the military is important for more than just kind of on the battlefield, what they can and cannot do. So is there anything further we want to discuss about understanding the military as more than just a combat organization?
0: For sure. Yeah. Let's let's explore that a bit because this is, yeah, a subject I really love. Um, and I think, you know, straight off the bat, most armed forces spend maybe their entire lifetimes, if not the vast majority of it, at peace, you know, they very rarely are are they at war um, for long. Um, So, you know, what are they up to? What are they doing? Well, there's a few ways to look at it. Again, we can look at this, the kind of state side of things, um, where the military is a key component of the state, perhaps the most key. um, And it's not just about power and expressing power, monopoly of violence, but we also have to think about legitimacy, that the, what legitimacy a military can give a state. Um, and there's some really interesting work on this. Um, but, you know, having, having an army with the flags and the whistles and the bells um, really kind of can establish a state um, in a way that nothing else can really. We should also see the military as a social institution that links with politics and culture um, in a way, you know, whether this is intentional or otherwise is intrinsically part of our societies, whether we're making films about the army, whether we're talking about, uh, the military and politics, you know, it really affects the whole of society. And we need to kind of understand and accept that. Um, and of course, when, when a military is intentionally used, uh, as a social institution, a kind of integrative agent, um, as they often are, um, it can be a a powerful nation building tool there's there's you know open debate about how effective a military can be but just to look at a few examples um the Lebanese army has this kind of nation building element written into its kind of mandate from the state you know one of its purposes is defined as as bringing the different kind of communities of Lebanon together as a nation um you know we can look at some armies like uh even France or the US, right? Where it really is this kind of uh, melting pot of citizens to create a, a, a uh, nation, let's say, um, a republic um, as well. And if we look at post-conflict societies as well, to go back to my earlier point really, but just how key having a military is for security and stabilization, um, you know, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be running around everywhere. But just having that presence, that monopoly on violence, essentially, um, really is key, even if it's not used. Um, and these are just a few few things that um, we should consider about the military. Um, I won't go on too much more, but in Yugoslavia, for example, the military was one of the main economic players in the whole country, uh, building roads, making, <laughs> making investments, running businesses. Um, so, you know, the point is that the military does much more than than fighting on the battlefield and its job is more often than not much more complicated than just uh, successfully engaging in armed conflict.
1: Hmm. No, that's definitely worth spending a moment on. So given that context and the last few answers um, of kind of the importance of the military, the role it can play and the role in a lot of ways it has and does play in bosnia um, let's get a bit into the weeds now uh, yes. about this particular case and military um so one thing i think that helps about the book is you don't sort of start with the integrated military right it's all about kind of explaining how we get there and that maybe goes back a bit further than we might expect so of as one of the elements that leads towards um, or enables later the integrated military can you introduce us to the blueprints and efforts made by the JNA that are then are a key part of understanding kind of how later on there ends up being an integrated military?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, you're right. And, you know, in the Balkans, this kind of effort to, to create these military institutions, unified institutions goes way back. You know, the Ottomans were, were working on things like this, the Austrians as well. Um and we look at the Kingdom of Yugoslavia before the Second World War, and that was a very Serb-dominated army. And to cut a very long story short, when it actually came to the um, the Axis invasion of, of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, that army lasted a few days, um, in a large part because the non-Serb uh, parts of the army were not willing to fight um now that is quite a simplification, but this brings us to the Second World War, where um, as as many of our listeners will know, that the real kind of resistance against uh, the Axis occupation came from the partisans, the communist partisans. There were other groups, but they came to dominate the the kind of uh, the region by the by the end of the conflict, and they faced the challenge of not only consolidating control over what was now socialist Yugoslavia. Um, but building something better, essentially, you know, that was the promise of the revolution itself. Um, so they had a lot of ideas about what to do with the military and how they wanted to use it. Um, so initially we see in the post-war period, um, in the immediate post-war period, there was quite a close relationship with the USSR. And they, for the first few years, they were kind of heading towards a a Soviet model. But from 1948, you know, Tito-Stalin split, all of this, they really go off and and forge their own path. And this adds another kind of challenge uh, to what they're trying to do with the military. And the challenge is that the USSR may invade them at any point. So you're kind of faced with the triple threat of potential invasion, post-conflict uh, environment where they're trying to exert their control and authority over the state. And this multi this question of multi-ethnicity, how do we translate this very multi-ethnic Yugoslav society into a cohesive military, which can defend us against the Soviet Union and perhaps NATO. Um, now, how they did this initially from 1948 uh, onwards was what I've called in the book integral Yugoslavism. This is not a, a term they used but um, scholarship on on Yugoslavia has kind of used this idea of integral Yugoslavism. And it's basically, the idea is that they are forging a Yugoslav nation out of all the nations and nationalities within socialist Yugoslavia, um, and basically turning them into Yugoslavs, right? It's, uh, if we want a quick analogy, it would be the equivalent of the British army recruiting Scots, Welsh, Irish, English, and making them into Brits. Now. That's a very complicated question. We have many layers to our identity and so on. But this is kind of what they were trying to do initially. And how they did that, there's a few different ways. They would take recruits from all over Yugoslavia, um, station them a long way from their homes with a milieu of of other kind of recruits from different parts of Yugoslavia. They created a a kind of unified language, um, which everyone would learn and use. And of course, there was this political training perhaps indoctrination element to it as well. And this really ran up until the 60s, um, where, yeah, the effort really was to create a Yugoslav nation. From 1964 onwards, there's a lot of debates begin to emerge about whether this is uh, the job of Yugoslavia, essentially. Is it creating Yugoslavs, or is it to be the protector of the nations and nationalities within Yugoslavia. Now this debate, you know, hits constitutions, the military, all of Yugoslav society. But from 1964 onwards, there are declarations where um, the Yugoslav administration essentially states that we're no longer looking to integrate people, We, we are basically the military is a framework for an increasingly decentralized network of armed forces, all of which are united by socialist Yugoslav patriotism now this leads to many problems down the track which we'll explore a bit later Um, but the idea here was that the the Yugoslav military was a framework for the kind of the workers the self-managing workers of Yugoslavia to organize themselves into armed forces so each republic would have its own military essentially Um, each factory would have its own kind of battalion a village would have a a squad or a platoon or something. Um, and this was the idea to decentralize the whole thing um, and make Yugoslavia the overarching framework for, as I said, protecting the nations and nationalities. There's a lot to unpack there. I don't think we have time to get into the Yugoslav uh, kind of debates on on the purpose of the state and so on. But, uh, but what I think is important is that there was this transition to, to what I call in the book organic Yugoslavism, where... Um, much like, uh, you know, the British army, to mention again, perhaps the Indian army, where the regiments really are the kind of uh, manifestations of the various nations and nationalities of those states within the military. So uh-huh. you join the Indian army, you have your own regiment, you're not necessarily becoming an Indian first and foremost, you can be part of your regiment as well. And this this kind of move to organic Yugoslavism, Yugoslavism really kind of ties in in an interesting way, I think, with the kind of broader military doctrine of Yugoslavia at this point, um, which is basically combined open partisan warfare. And this is all around the Soviet threat where the Yugoslavs fully expected to lose command and control of their forces. They fully expected for most of their professional troops to, to not last very long at all on the battlefield. And the idea was that the Yugoslav population would rise up as partisans, just as they did in the Second World War. So this need for decentralization for each factory to have its own military structure that its workers would go into and it would operate essentially autonomously in in the case of an invasion. So that's the kind of practical military rationale for this. But it's really interesting how it impacts these questions of identity and nations and nationality. Um, but that's the, that's kind of the the kind of key ways in which the JNA sort of tried to address this. Just to summarize quickly, it was, you know, first let's make everyone into Yugoslavs. They figure out that's not really working. And then it's really trying to figure out a way for the military to still function whilst guaranteeing the rights and everything of the nations and nationalities of Yugoslavia.
1: That is a very helpful answer on a number of levels and impressive with how (laughs) concisely you've managed to put all of that. Um, So it's probably worth flagging to listeners that, of course, the book has loads more detail. Um, This is in many ways kind of a highlights tour of it, um, but a very helpful one. So now that we've discussed a little bit the JNA, could we talk about the VRS and the key things we need to understand about them, again, when thinking ahead to the integrated army?
0: Yes, for sure, and I mean, I think it's probably worth explaining here that the VRS, the Voice Republika Republic um, of the Army of Republic of uh was, you know, one of the main actors in in the uh, during the war in Bosnia. Um, now, the, the VRS very much kind of inherited a lot of structures, logistics, equipment, and personnel from the JNA. Uh, and it's the army that um, Ratko Mladic used to basically launch a campaign and successfully occupy about half of Bosnia in the initial months of the war. Um, now the VRS, due to its kind of, you know, predecessor army JNA, was by far the most well organized, most well equipped military in Bosnia. Um, about eighty thousand troops from the JNA were allocated to Mladic at the start of the war. They were professional, ready to go, fully equipped. And then that component was kind of complemented by recruits from Boz, um, Republica Serbska, or Bosnian Serbs from Bosnia at the time. Uh, so this this built quite, quite a large army, very kind of technologically advanced army compared to others in Bosnia. Um, and there's a few things that we we need to keep in mind when we're looking ahead towards the integration process. So perhaps obvious, but worth noting is that it was largely monoethnic, monoethnic. Um and this, you know, is something of a unusual thing in in the history of the Balkans. Even some of the uh more radical armed forces and paramilitary groups you might have heard of, uh retains some element of multi-ethnicity um i'll expand on that um a bit later as well um so it was a completely almost completely serb army there were a few others in it um but this you know sets a precedent and kind of adds challenges which we'll have to um unpack later it's also i think important to say outright that this army committed multiple instances of war crimes and genocide recognized by the ic uh the international criminal tribunal, um, for former Yugoslavia at the Hague. Uh, so that's a, a legacy that it, they cannot escape. And, um, obviously in terms of integrating with other armed forces, whose communities were on, on the receiving end of these acts of genocide, there's so much there, so much complexity, um, that had to be overcome. Um, now, Those things are significant challenges, Um, not unique to Bosnia, I don't think. Um, But what was really quite unique about the VRS was that during the war and afterwards, um, and that's the important bit, and afterwards, is the extent to which it was linked to Belgrade, to Slobodan Milosevic and his administration. Um, Now, this isn't just kind of, you know, allies, they're very much, um, and I can't, overstate this, completely linked. So they had a shared pool of officers. Officers would would rotate in and out from what was then Federal Republic of Yugoslavia into Bosnia. Uh, Bosnian Serb troops were paid from Belgrade. If they were wounded, they'd go to Serbia for treatment. Vehicles, uh, equipment would go there for repair. They had munitions and everything stored. Sometimes they called in artillery strikes from Serbia onto Bosnian territory. And, uh, you know, if someone died, uh, their widow, in most cases, would uh, receive the kind of payout and the pension from Belgrade. Um, so they actually had a unit within the what remained of the Yugoslav army, which is think of it as the Serb army at this point, really. It was the 30th Kodrovsky Center, like the 30th Personnel Center. This was a unit of the army in Serbia that, all of this work I just described was funneled through. Um, So intrinsically linked um, across communications and everything I just said. So very much part of the same military framework, if not the same military itself. Now, what was quite unusual about the BRS and is very important um, to think about as we move ahead is that this relationship continued after the war uh, finished what was ended um, to the extent that you know, long into the early 2000s, even um, this kind of framework still existed. There were munitions companies in Republic of Serbia that were still operating as if they were still part of Yugoslavia and, and working with uh, businesses in Serbia. So they they really are kind of completely linked, um, and this kind of posed many challenges. Going forward, um, and I can expand a bit on on how that played out uh, a little bit later.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think we'll get there. Um, but that's a very helpful and um, piece to add on as we get towards uh, that point. With then moving forward to the next piece, how did then the army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina come to be created? Given what you've told us so far.
0: Yeah, so. The the army of the Republic of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina really evolved throughout the war. So when the VRS um, tried to occupy as much of Bosnia as they could, various units and groups within Bosnia rose up in defense. Um, Now, a lot of these came through the framework of the Yugoslav territorial defense. So basically in majority Muslim or Croat or... In more multi-ethnic areas, the territorial defence structures of Yugoslavia raised their units, armed them, and they were there to defend their towns. And if we kind of think back to what I was saying about the Yugoslav kind of military doctrine, especially in the latter part of socialist Yugoslavia, this is where this really comes into play. This decentralized network of kind of almost autonomous armed forces um came into action. So towns would mobilize their forces, factories would mobilize theirs and they'd basically defend uh, pre-planned positions around around their homes, essentially. Um, so that was one component of, of the uh, army. Um A lot of people, a lot of Bosnian Muslims and Croats uh, left the JNA, you know, between 1990, 91, 92. And a lot of these guys were professional soldiers and they really formed the kind of the staff core of uh, the JNA, like the officers kind of running the military, as it were. We also had groups like the um, Patriots League, uh, which was sort of linked to the SDA, the the main Bosnian Muslim or Bosniak uh, political party. Um, So in places like Sarajevo and a few other cities, uh, the Patriots League really kind of raised quite significant formations. And then on top of this, you have a whole range of paramilitary groups um, across Bosnia. And I think it's important to note that the the armed forces of um, the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina, as the VRS occupied a lot of the country, they were kind of left in isolated pottics, uh, sorry pockets, that um, they were defending. So you know, you had the Fifth Corps, Aden Bihac, essentially spent the entire war by themselves, yes, fighting the VRS, but without any kind of support from, for example, the the units in Sarajevo, who again, essentially spent almost the entire war defending the city from the VRS siege. Um, so this kind of dispersal of that army and its haphazard uh, formation kind of meant there was a very slow pro- process of centralization. Um, now, initially, particularly these territorial defense units were very multi-ethnic, but as kind of control was consolidated and it became more centralized under the SDA and um, Bakir Isbegovic and Sarajevo, uh, it became increasingly Muslim, increasingly Bosniak, not only in terms of its composition, but in terms of its kind of uh, aesthetic and its outlook. Um, so while some units remain very multi-ethnic and committed to a secular idea of a of a Bosnian of a secular Bosnian state um some units became much more radical uh and this is where we see a lot of the kind of volunteers coming over from Iran and the Arab world to fight alongside the Bosnians um now it was basically by the end of the war where when uh, this army was really actually that's that's an exaggeration i'm going to take that back it was long after the war when this really became an army Many of the commanders and generals themselves said, even at the end of the war, we're not an army yet. We're a nation in arms. You know, they didn't see themselves as professional um, because they hadn't had time. They didn't have scope or even space to conduct training. Um, There was very much a kind of civilian militia defending their cities. Um, Now, another challenge that the army of the Republic faced was they had sometimes ally, sometimes enemy, in the in the form of the HVO, the Croat Defense Council. Now, in some parts of Bosnia, these two kind of competing um, armed forces fought side by side for the entire war and ultimately ended up part of the same military structure. Um, in other parts of Bosnia, if we look at kind of, the, kind of central Bosnia, um, the, the HVO and, and the army of Bosnia uh, fought each other for for almost two years, Um, you know, to the great advantages of the VRS um, and the detriment of themselves. Uh, But that's an important kind of piece as well, is that in this kind of spectrum of armed groups, there was this kind of very uh, autonomous element called the HVO, um, which just adds another additional kind of complexity to the picture. But this is, again, really important for looking at the integrated military military later on. Mm. Um, and I would just finish by saying that the the army of the Republic of Bos- Bosnia and Herzegovina only really became operationally effective in the final months of the war, um, and I would say it only really became a, pre- a professional army uh, in the late 1990s.
1: Hmm. Thank you for tracing kind of those components and the timeline as well. Can we add in a kind of very explicitly political aspect, um, the Dayton Peace Agreement? In what ways did this make it harder to create a unified army?
0: So Dayton uh, comes under a lot of criticism um, for basically creating a constitution which hasn't really delivered for Bosnia. But we need to understand that first and foremost, is a peace agreement, and it did ultimately achieve that. Um, and there is you know a mechanism for getting out of the kind of constitutional mess that it's kind of left. But in terms of the military, it almost said nothing about the armed forces that were the three armed forces that were there in Bosnia at the time it was signed and what the plan would be for, you know, addressing that situation, however it might happen. Um, And Richard Holbrook, who's, you know, kind of the architect of Dayton, he said as much as, you know, himself that the one key flaw of the agreement was that it left three armies in one state. Um, So everyone was very aware of this at the time. And I would kind of speculate that getting too detailed in the military aspects of the agreement would deter Milosevic and others from basically signing Dayton. So they left it out. Um, And, you know, we could debate about whether that was a good move or a bad move forever. But I think the important bit is that it left this, you know, huge, gaping ambiguity in the post-conflict settlement, um, which was quite out of place because Dayton was very detailed in a lot of other aspects when it comes to the constitutional structures and, and various other things, you know, the presence of the international community is outlined in detail. Um, but this ambiguity left the VRS, especially with a lot of scope to kind of interpret, uh, the peace settlement, how it wanted. Um, and this really kind of manifested in it remained uh, in the VRS, Maintaining its ties with Belgrade, and essentially operating as a completely independent, separate military military from anything in Bosnia, for all intents and purposes, it remained that kind of wing of the uh, of the Yugoslav army uh, coming out of Belgrade. Um, So, in this this kind of context, the army of the Republic of Bosnia and Herzegovina started to move towards a kind of NATO structure, at least. It was trained and equipped by the US and others um, with Western equipment, Western thinking, Western doctrine. Uh, The VRS, in contrast, as I said, maintained its ties to Serbia, stuck with the Yugoslav model. And, you know, if nothing else, this kind of raised many challenges that were only compounded by the politics of the time, Uh, you know, very technical questions when it comes to integration uh so we really should understand Dayton as setting the kind of armies that fought the war setting them off on divergent paths um in everything in terms of their purpose their structure um and even equipment
1: oh yeah, that's not exactly um, a clear cut way forward, but it doesn't stop with Dayton. Can you tell us what happened in 2002 and three and how this impacted the situation you've just described?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, from 95, the end of 95 up until 2002, this kind of diverging paths was was very much the case. And there was no guarantee that peace would endure in Bosnia. Um these armies were still essentially lined up against each other, ready to ready to fight. Um, now, a few things happened in the early 2000s which really changed the calculus. Um, you know, we had Zoran Jinjic come into power in Serbia. He was later assassinated, but that really kind of changed after the Milosevic era, uh, after the Milosevic era, really changed the kind of tone in the region, for want of a better word. And I think importantly in 2002, uh, Paddy Ashdown... Uh, became the high representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina, so this is a position, um, that is built in place by the international by the international community. It's overseen by the uh, Peace Implementation Council, um, and essentially, at least from nineteen ninety eight onwards, the high representative had kind of power to force legislation through, remove officials, elected officials, and essentially really um, intervene in Bosnian politics. So Paddy Ashdown came into this role in 2002 with a mandate to kind of, the war was over and now it was time to build the peace properly. And he came with a team, he was highly motivated and he had this mandate to essentially put Bosnia properly on the path towards Euro-Atlantic integration. So that means, you know, getting it ready for EU membership, um, getting its military into shape so it could join NATO if they wanted to, um, getting elections working properly, all of this. Um, So, Paddy Ashdown is in this job for not very long, um, and then basically, some stories start to emerge um, coming out. Of a town in in northern Bosnia, that a company there, the Oral Aviation Institute, um, had been basically selling weapons to Iraq. Now, if we go back to our uh, world history two thousand two two thousand three, this is obviously just before the uh, the invasion of Iraq. Sanctions were in place at this time, so essentially, to put it very plainly, uh, Bosnia was in contravention of international sanctions against Iraq, we could have faced a trade embargo, could have faced all sorts of repercussions. This is thanks to this one kind of uh, factory in Bosnia, working with colleagues in Serbia to provide parts, engines, and maintenance and everything to for MIGs, for Saddam Hussein's Air Force. So we had... Serb subcontractors in Baghdad working on MiGs. We had parts being produced and shipped from Belgrade. Um, so this, you know, hit the news big time in Bosnia. Headlines are saying Bosnia could face international sanctions in 24 hours. What's going to happen to the economy? Is there going to be another war? This was probably the biggest crisis since the war ended. Um, I would say certainly it was. And no one really knew what to do, right? The Bosnian uh, politicians of, of various different loyalties didn't really have a response. Um, and then with some international investigations, it basically emerged that, um, that yeah, these companies have been trading with Iraq, that they tried to hide evidence, destroy evidence, and basically it had put Bosnia at risk of, you know, instability, essentially. Uh, So in response to this, Paddy Ashton laid out some kind of measures that needed to be put in place, um, including essentially dismissing a lot of the leadership of of Republika Srpska. I think in total, something like 17 senior officials were dismissed. A couple of them went to prison. Um, They all went on trial. And this really created a window of opportunity in Republika Srpska for kind of a new perhaps a more moderate uh, wave of leaders to to come in to power. And that really is the key to changing the calculus, right, for them, particularly for for the VRS, for Republika Srpska, about their position in Bosnia and how they could preserve, in their view, what they'd won in the war, which was a autonomous entity, uh, not quite a state, but a political entity with with a lot of its own powers in Republika Srpska. So, oh, oh, go on.
1: No, sorry, please finish.
0: Um, yeah, so uh, this whole thing, you know, it's called the Oral Affair. Oral means Eagle. Um, so it's the Eagle A- Aviation Institute. And it was this kind of this risk that they had gone too far um, and that Dayton itself could be, which, which Dayton itself preserves Republic of Serbs, so that could be rewritten by the international community. The structures of RS could be dismantled all because they they put the state in jeopardy, international embargoes, etc. So, this completely changed the calculus and kind of opened the door for the military reform and many other reforms, in fact, to go through. Um, You know, I think we should keep in mind that whilst they were working towards building this military, the other key priority at this time was introducing a VAT system to try and generate revenue. For the state to um to strengthen it essentially, so um this kind of thing had all been blocked uh in the post-war period. The bomb powers were introduced to essentially force through some very basic things like the flag of Bosnia that we now know, um, the passports, anthems, number plates, all of these very innocuous things really um that uh that Bosnian leaders failed to agree to. Um, so up until this point, up until the Aura Affair, the only kind of meaningful reforms that had happened were forced through. And I think in a a moment we'll discuss kind of how the military integration process itself happened in the aftermath of the Aura Affair.
1: Yes. In fact, that is what I'd like to discuss next. Um, can you tell us more about what this opened up for military reform?
0: Yeah, um so essentially we have this new leadership come into Republic of serbska and they're shaken and they kind of see it as their main role and responsibility is to maintain what had been gained uh in the war and enshrined in dayton um and this basically meant they were much more open to compromise to, n- to talking to negotiations really um about their place in bosnia um Now, how this happened, you know, on the ground, you know, the reality of this is that um, the international community put together uh, a commission, people, you know, NATO were represented OSCE, all of these things. um, And they really are the kind of facilitators, the the conveners of what was essentially a series of workshops over almost two years, um, where they brought together Bosnian Croat leaders, Bosnian Serb leaders, Bosnian Muslim leaders um, and others, of course, um, to really iron out a structure for the military that that would work for all of them. Um, Now, a really important part of this is because of the Orara affair, there was buy-in from Republika Srpska, and as soon as that political will was there, the military guys who were going to these workshops, um, they just wanted to do their job, right? You know, they've got a task and a purpose. Go and find us a military structure that works for us. So once the kind of politics was out of the way and we're in these kind of closed workshops, um, progress was actually quite quick. Um, So the international community was bringing in ideas and and lessons from different parts of the world. Um, For example, the regimental system, which... Today, the British Army uses the Canadians, the Indians, um, a few others use, um, but different, you know, kind of different ideas around structuring a unified uh, multi-ethnic military and how that might look. Um, And what I find really interesting is that the product of these workshops, these negotiations, was not a kind of mandate from the international community telling them, telling the Bosnians what they should do. It really was a collaborative kind of Bosnian effort facilitated by the internationals to come up with a solution that works for them. Um, and in, in the interviews I conducted for the book, there was a little bit of frustration sometimes from the international community about the compromises that were made and the decisions that were made by the Bosnians. But ultimately it worked, right? They, they successfully brought together these three different armies and agreed to a structure and a system that would work for them. And they agreed to put that through parliament. They agreed to fund it. And basically by 2006, what we have now, the armed forces of Bosnia and Herzegovina um, came into force. And, you know, it's been there ever since. Um, Mm -hmm. So I can unpack some of the kind of actual decisions that were made and the structures they went for, because I find that really quite interesting. Yeah, please. So... um, there's a lot of differing, sometimes conflicting sort of approaches they use, but ultimately it, it kind of came together to what we have. So <clears throat>
1: um,
0: one thing they were very keen on was for the proportions within the military to reflect the 1991 census in Bosnia. This is partly because they didn't have any other census to go on, partly because, you know, this was the pre-war situation and that, you know, was the legitimate situation. So, you know, a certain percentages of Croats, a certain percentage of Muslims, and a certain percentage of Serbs. And that's just a very kind of initial, if we're looking at the entire military. Um, in terms of structure, um, they did adopt the regimental system. So you have Bosnian Muslims or Bosniaks will join the Rangers Regiment, uh, Bosnian Croats will join the Guards Regiment, and then Bosnian Serbs will join the regiment of Republic of Serbska. Now these regiments are only for the infantry, like the frontline infantry in the military and make up about half of the overall personnel of of the armed forces. Um, so each regiment has about three battalions and then operationally, if these, these, uh, battalions are deployed, they will go as a brigade in a kind of similar way that a NATO brigade would look with three different battalions and support elements. But when they are deployed, it would be one battalion from the guards, one battalion from the Rangers, and one battalion from Republika Srpska. So kind of at every level, there's your steps to kind of have representation across the ethnicities, the nationalities. Um, And yeah, that's really quite an interesting point, I think. Um, And if, for example, a smaller contingent of Bosnians are going off on a peace support mission with the UN or with coalition forces in Iraq, um, as they did, this force would be, would have equal representation. So actually on the cover of my book here, you can see the first um, deployment of a unified Bosnian military contingent abroad. So you have 36 soldiers here, they're unexploded ordnance specialists, um, 12 of them are Serb, 12 of them are Croat, 12 of them are Bosnian Muslim. Um, And they went out together to Iraq, serving alongside the US and and other coalition forces. Um, So you can see just like the British army, for example, these regiments enshrine a lot of the identities and culture, um, history of the communities they represent. But that's kind of only half of the army, as I said, and the other half is completely mixed. The more kind of specialists and professional roles, flying helicopters, artillery, all of this, that's completely mixed. So there's not this complete like cleavage within the military um, based on ethnicity. It's only really done at this symbolic level with the infantry. Um, so that's the kind of structure of the overall military. Um, as you might expect in terms of command positions, um, these are kind of done on rotation and there'll be you know, a, let's say, a Bosnian Serb commander, he'll have a Croat and a Muslim deputy within the Ministry of Defence itself, which creating a unified Ministry of Defence was absolutely key. Um, there was a similar kind of representation where positions will rotate and a leader of one ethnicity will have uh, deputies from the others. Um, so they've really tried to address a lot of this, these questions of identity and integration whilst maintaining combat effectiveness and importantly for Bosnia, cost effectiveness. Um, I think a really important point to make is that this new unified military um, basically cost less than half of what having multiple separate militaries did. Having one Ministry of Defense is cheaper than having two or three, um, to to put it bluntly. But uh, this really did save Bosnia a lot of money um it consolidated the armies and contributed to peace obviously and i feel you know it's hard to know what a perfect job would look like but it's it's what it's done uh an effective job the military is cohesive they haven't tried to launch a coup they haven't hurt civilians they're fulfilling their their mandate from the bosnian uh parliament successfully in my opinion so these various efforts to bring bring the military together really did work um
1: Mm. yeah as much as that sounds like obviously a massive improvement from where we started this discussion um you do talk about in the book that there are still some challenges for this integrated military would you mind discussing those a bit
0: yeah so yeah um i feel like focusing on that reform period can everything can sound quite uh rose-tinted and and optimistic, Um, and I think rightly so, that there was a few years where, you know, a lot of progress was made and they they successfully created this institution. Um, And, you know, it's kind of, it's job as given um, in the law on the army is to contribute to peace support operations. As I just mentioned, it's been doing that quite successfully with the UN with coalition forces um another one is defending bosnian governor bosnia has not been attacked i don't know how much we can attribute that to the military but you know it's doing it it's contributing to that and it's demining the country um now Bo- the bosnia is still i think 2.2 percent covered in landmines or contaminated um and that number's been going down obviously since the war ended um but the bulk of this work is done by the bosnian military so you know, there's there's a few kind of successes we can point to. Um, and in the round, I think, you know, the bar for a post-conflict military is usually that it doesn't start another war. So if we're looking at this kind of stuff, we can see it as highly successful. But as you say, there's still a lot of challenges um, that it faces. The most significant of which, in my opinion, is political. It's the domestic politics in Bosnia, where after this... Kind of window of opportunity when Paddy Ashdown was High Representative, and you had relatively um, cooperative leaders in Republic of Srpska. Um, that all changed when uh, Miro Dodik came to power, and had since coming to power has become increasingly combative. And he now views the armed forces of Bosnia as a kind of illegitimate instrument of. The, the western occupation of Bosnia however he would describe it I don't want to start quoting him too much but um but yeah he basically casts it as a foreign and occupying force and it's an illegitimate illegitimate military um and this not only puts a lot of pressure on the armed forces because they're constantly attacked um by dodik but it also has led to a kind of political paralysis around um, funding for state institutions now this has kind of been the story in Bosnia since I would say around 2006 until until today 2024 where um a lot of those efforts in the immediate post-war period and then in the early 2000s have stagnated and we've now been stuck in a situation for over a decade at least I think where a few kind of remaining questions around kind of old Yugoslav military property being assigned to the Bosnian government instead of the Republic of Srpska government have really kind of caught up, got caught up, and essentially nothing is moving, completely paralysed. Um, and where this really impacts the military is in funding for it. So it currently survives on an absolute drip, three, drip feed uh, from the state and um as i mentioned before you know this army is a good deal financially for bosnia um but there there simply lacks the political will political consensus to fund it so currently you know conditions aren't great wages are reasonable for bosnia but still not amazing particularly for officers um and this is really kind of hamstringing the armed forces um And so currently yeah if the if the bosnians want to go and do something perhaps on a peace support operation they might have to hire vehicles from the americans they might have to see if they can get some donations from somewhere if they want to go on a training exercise you know again someone's going to have to come and pick them up all of this kind of stuff so that's the kind of real challenge um they're facing is you know essentially being starved of resources by um Essentially, Milorad Dodik's efforts to paralyze the Bosnian state. Um, now, this there's a kind of a question here. Um, you know, the military can't do much to overcome that challenge itself, right? This is a political question, but trying to survive in this environment is the challenge that the military faces, and it's doing okay. Um, and they might get there. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, that's the kind of broader, longer view, let's say, um, of the challenges faced by the military. Um, But alongside that, I would say that the current instability in the region um, presents a very significant challenge. Now, I think it's fair to state that basically, since 1995, someone's published an article saying this is the worst it's been in Bosnia. Um, But yeah, in, in all honesty, I think I think it might be the worst it's been now since 1995. If we just saw a few weeks ago, during the National Day, in inverted commas, of Republika Srpska, we had Russian night wolves, paramilitaries, armed police, all of this marching through the streets of Luka. The Americans had just flown F-16s over Bosnia as a reminder to, to kind of not do this kind of thing. Last year, we saw... I mean, I think we can politely describe it as a low-intensity armed conflict in northern Kosovo. We've had, you know, ongoing instability and unpredictability in, in Montenegro. And, of course, Alexander Vucic in, in Serbia kind of uh, making some very bellicose statements from time to time. Um, so, looking forward now, I would say the armed forces of Bosnia are facing kind of their biggest challenge, which is, Going to be trying to maintain peace and stability in Bosnia, keeping all of the different parts of the army, potentially mostly Bosnian Serbs, on side um, in case Dodik kind of pushes pushes too far and does try and secede, does try and deploy his police force as an army and kind of destabilize you know destabilize Bosnia. We're not we can't really we shouldn't uh, speculate too much on what might happen, but. Um, but that's, that's the challenge they're facing. And, and the next few years um, with kind of a lot of political in, uh, unpredictability, not just in the Balkans, but you know, let, let we have to look globally. It's very hard to predict what will happen, but you know, that's the kind of challenge that the, the, the military is facing is maintaining mm-hmm. its legitimacy, keeping enough Bosnian Serbs on side and still being prepared and able to to kind of put um, Dodek's forces in their place if, if they do try and violently secede from Bosnia.
1: So that's very helpfully given us a lot to um, look out for, look forward to in terms of current events, the news. Are there any areas for further research you'd like to highlight on this topic?
0: Um, yes, for sure. Um, now, yeah, I would love to kind of research some other militaries using this lens um, and just a few few examples, which I think would be great um for, for anyone listening if they have a chance um the Lebanese army i find absolutely intriguing it's kind of essentially in a similar position to bosnia but it's gone down a very different path um and that's one i would like to explore in more detail um there's uh the army of tanzania um, from what i understand from my limited uh kind of reading on the subject is that Somehow, um, upon independence, they successfully answered a lot of these questions around identity and integrating and creating a cohesive institution, which is effective on the battlefield, doesn't launch a coup, doesn't hurt civilians, reflects society, and is, you know, basically a a positive social uh, institution for the country. And like I said, yeah, the Tanzanians seem to have set this up basically upon independence and I would love to understand the journey that they went on um, which again from what I can tell a a lot of other parts in the world including in Europe is kind of only catching on to to these ideas so that's kind of one one bucket of research I would really like to do and then another kind of area which I think is only really come into focus um, since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia which is not only looking at these questions in terms of a post-conflict environment or a, or a multi-ethnic society, but looking at kind of the resilience of a military um, writ large. You know, if, you know, foreign information manipulation and interference operations target these kind of historical grievances and these questions of identity, everything like this, then understanding the military's place in that um, I think is really important. And this is kind of quite, um, you know, a new idea, but, you know, looking at a military and everything we've discussed today, but looking at his, looking at its resilience against manipulation, essentially. Um, and if we look back to the collapse of Yugoslavia, a lot of these questions, you know, had they been answered properly by the Yugoslavs, We might be in a very different position in terms of building a military which cannot be manipulated by, you know, a single politician who's employing, you know, lies and disinformation, essentially, to to start a war. Um, So I think there's a lot to learn. um, And, you know, it'd be great if if, um, more research can kind of open up uh, this field.
1: Mm, yeah. And if people doing this research, come come reach out to me and then I can interview you and get it all in the same ecosystem. So yeah. thank you for sharing those. And of course, for anyone interested in getting more into the details of this case that we've been discussing, the book is titled Building a Multi-Ethnic Military in Post-Yugoslav Bosnia and Herzegovina, published by Bloomsbury. Elliot, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.